They have occupied the minds of Christians for centuries, and they are at the very heart of Christianity, and they're at the heart of the Bible, and I pray that they would be on our hearts with appropriate weight. Grant that we not ever come under the judgment of trifling with the Word of God. So draw near now, I pray, and be our teacher. Through Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Left over from Caster is a whole box or two of these little brochures from Desiring God Ministries, which is the literature and tape ministry of our church. And uh, they're sitting somewhere at exits. So if you want one, they're free and you can take them. And what you can't get here, like sermons and tapes and whatnot, if you want to, there's a web page and an email address and a lot of things there. So you can get that if, if you want. Our uh, pricing policy is what people can afford. And uh, just so you know, and it might encourage you, I don't know, it might um, free you up to buy books and sell them is that I don't I don't keep any of the royalties from these books. All the all the money that uh, the publisher sends, they send to Desiring God Ministries and I have a contract with my church since I'm doing all this on their time that they get the money and plow it right back into uh, making the books affordable for people who can't afford them and things like that. So know that uh, I'm scared of getting rich because Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into the kingdom. And I want to get into the kingdom. I hope you're scared of getting rich too because it's a very dangerous thing. So you must put governors on your life. You must put governors on your life because expenses always expand to fill the income And you'll always be able to justify another few thousand dollars. So if you don't put governors of giving on, you will soon live in a bigger house and drive a bigger car and take more holidays and eat out more often and wonder why you're just getting by at the end of the month. So take heed. Uh, That sort of jumps into midday tomorrow when we talk about covetousness and how to triumph over it. Let me summarize where we were when we left off, and we'll take maybe till 9.30 or so tonight, and, uh, and then pick it up when we're more fresh in the morning. I don't want to push you too hard tonight. A passion for the supremacy of God drives this thinking. A passion for joy, those two not at odds, but God's supremacy being exalted through our delighting in Him, and then a passion for holiness versus Outlining the necessity of holiness, I believe, necessity for salvation. Then the question, well, how does that relate to justification by faith alone? I read the Westminster Confession paragraph that we are justified by faith alone on the basis of Christ's righteousness alone. And then the question was asked, well, how do faith like that and those necessary works relate? And... The confession takes us so far, but in my judgment, not far enough by saying 
this faith is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is not dead faith, but worketh by love. So faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone. That's the classic reformed way of saying it. Faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone in the life. Therefore, there will always be evidences, evidences that there is faith. And all those texts that I read are God's way of saying, I will look for evidences at the judgment day. Now, let me give you an illustration of what I think that day will look like from an Old Testament passage. This is just an illustration. This is not a a snapshot of the judgment, but it gets at a principle that I think the Lord will follow and does follow. And it's the story of Solomon and the two harlots, the two prostitutes, who each got pregnant in their business, had their baby at night, cuddled in their arms. One of them rolls over on her baby, smothers the baby and kills it, wakes up, is terrified that she has killed her baby, notices the other woman sleeping soundly with her safe baby and quietly takes the well baby Puts in her arms, takes the dead baby, puts it in the other person's arms and goes back to sleep. In the morning, the mother who has the dead baby in her arms now is horror struck that her baby is dead. And when she looks at the baby, she says, this is not my baby. That's my baby. And the other one says, no, no, this is my baby. And somehow or other, this gets all the way to the king. Now, what would you do if you were Solomon? I've been in situations, and I'm sure most of you leaders have, where you're facing an issue and all you knew to do is say, give me the wisdom of Solomon here. Show me when to say, cut the baby. I've been in many situations, and that's the way I prayed. I said, Lord, I don't have a clue who's right here. I don't know who to believe in this situation. Show me this prophetically inspired word that says, cut the baby in half. And God brings remarkable wisdom to mind at those times to break through what seems to be an absolutely insoluble problem. I've been at least two of those in church discipline situations of huge proportions where immorality is at stake and there's blatant denial of what others are saying with two or three witnesses are true. And you don't know what to do. You say you're lying, you're out of here and no confession or what? Well, Solomon looks at these women And he says, bring me a sword. And then he says, uh, I suppose he gives it to somebody and says, cut the baby in half and we'll give half to one mother and half to the other. And the true mother cries out these words. Oh, my Lord, give her the child and by no means kill it. And Solomon says, she's the mother. Give her the baby. Now. Solomon looked for something in the life of this woman. He looked for something. I need to know who the mother is here. There will be evidences of motherhood here. And when the woman said, don't cut the baby, that was the work he was looking for. Now, that work did not create the relationship of motherhood. Any more than our good works create a relationship with God. The work 
don't cut the baby in half, did not earn the baby. She didn't earn the baby. All those words did was evidence a reality. I'm the mother. She had become the mother through a gracious work of God by which the baby was created, albeit through sin. She was a harlot. That's a picture. It's a kind of of analogy of the judgment. When God says works like that are required of you, mothers, all you mothers, Christians, all of us, he's not saying earn your way to heaven. There's no earning of heaven. And he's not saying, if you don't do this, you don't create a relationship. We don't create the relationship. God creates the relationship by the supernatural work of new birth, which enables us to cry out like little babies in faith to him. So I hope you can get through that analogy some glimpse of how the necessity of works, as those texts I read describe them, does not involve you in earning your salvation or in creating by them a relationship with God. They are evidential rather than creative. Now, how does faith, how does saving faith do that? My, the reason I say that the Westminster Confession is inadequate doesn't go as far as I need it to go, is that I want to ask the question, why is it that the faith that justifies is never alone? And it just stops. It doesn't analyze why. It just says it is. Now, Calvin also does not help me as much here as I need help with. Calvin says, when you believe, you receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit performs the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, meekness, faithfulness, self-control. And therefore, they're always coextensive. Genuine faith and the fruit of the Spirit exist in the same person. And the link is the Holy Spirit. But what I need there is a link that has some conscious element to it. Something I do or some explanation how what I do and what I choose and how I believe relates to the way the spirit brings about those fruits, the holiness that we're we're after. And this book, Future Grace, is written to explain what that dynamic is that gives rise to those works. And I'll put it in a nutshell here. Then we'll spend the rest of our time tomorrow uh, analyzing it. And, and the last two times tomorrow at or maybe just the last time, I'm going to take sample sins like bitterness and covetousness and lust and impatience and ask how it is that saving faith triumphs over those sins. Not some other kind of faith, not some second stage Christianity, but basic saving faith is the key that triumphs over those sins and produces holiness. And and I'll give you a nutshell of how it works here, and then we'll begin to dig in and, and tackle it. I argue that faith, saving faith, justifying faith, sanctifies by severing the root of sin with a superior promise. 
faith in a superior promise severs the root of the promise of sin. There's a lot to say at once, and we're going to spend three more hours on it. So nobody sins out of duty. Nobody gets up in the morning and says, I really don't want to sin today, but I will. Nobody relates to sin that way. People sin for one basic reason. Sin makes promises of happiness. If you lie, have a little more money on your taxes. Or if you open this magazine or watch that television program, your body will experience some titillating thrills that you've learned are very pleasurable. If you leave this marriage, which is just one horrible, miserable conflict, and find a younger, prettier, more amenable partner, life will go well, and other such lies. Sin only has power through its lying. Satan is a liar, so he joins in with sin and the flesh and makes some of these things awesomely powerful. I'll tell you, when sex and Satan get together, it is almost indomitable. It is frightening the power when sex, temptation, and Satan team up to blind a man or a woman to what the preciousness of vow-keeping can bring them. If sin only has power through lying promises, I argue the only way evangelically to triumph over sin is with superior promises and confidence in those promises. Now, I'm using the word promise here instead of the word future grace. Same thing in my vocabulary. When God promises you a future, God works all things together for your good. That's future grace. You can almost equate in my vocabulary promise and future grace. What God promises to do for us in this life and the next is future grace. It is believing those promises that sever the root of sin because the superior promise nullifies the promise of sin. The future grace, when it is preached or read with the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, suddenly shines in our heart as more to be desired than the fleeting pleasures of this world. And we wonder how we could have ever been allured as long as we were allured to these sinful pleasures. I had the analogy one time in a sermon and it's come back to me over and over again that in the dark room of, of lying sin, someone gives you a brooch and they put it around your neck, an ebony brooch, and you feel it. And it's hard and ebony is a beautiful, dark thing. and You're thankful and, and you just clutch it to you in the dark. And then because your mother is praying or because you hear some powerful anointed message or because God draws you to read the word, light begins to dawn in your life. 
truth begins to dispel darkness and you look down and it's not a brooch. It's a roach hanging around your neck. That's the way sin is. And you go, yeah! What am I doing fiddling around with this stuff? And until you see sin that way, all you'll have is duty to live by. And you only see sin that way when beauty begins to reign in your life. The beauty of God, the beauty of promises, the beauty of heaven, the beauty of holiness, the beauty of obedience, the beauty of suffering for righteousness sake. When those things become beautiful, sin will appear ugly. And until sin is ugly, the forsaking of sin will not be with dancing. And it ought to be with dancing. We ought to dance out of sin's room and wonder how we could have ever enjoyed it. That's freedom. That's freedom. For freedom, Christ has set you free. And you will only know freedom if you see the glory of God, the beauty of holiness or what it is, and it severs the root of flicking on that TV tonight. Looking for some nudity. Okay. Now, what I want to do is begin to give biblical warrant for those last five minutes or so. I've just described to you living by faith in future grace in a nutshell. Now, it's a big nut. And... Uh, I want to take a few hours to unpack it. So we'll get as far as we can tonight and just pick it up in the morning. So let me start by describing faith, saving, justifying faith as the worker in our life. It isn't that you begin with a thing called justifying faith and then you turn and you leave that behind and that's settled and that's good. You did that. And now there's another way to live the Christian life besides that. I argue that faith, that faith, is the same faith by which we live, and it is a faith in future grace, and it is faith that works. So let me give you some verses where I'm getting that idea. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, Paul says, We constantly bear in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. That little phrase, work of faith, I take to mean work that faith produces. When you have genuine faith in God, it works. I want to know why. I want to know what is it about this faith. But first, I'm just establishing that it works. That's all I'm doing for the next five minutes or so is establishing that it works. Not why yet. Second Thessalonians 1, 11. To this end, also, we pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and work of faith with power. So here's a prayer. Paul is praying that God may count them worthy of their calling. How? 
by fulfilling every desire for goodness. So God's the one who, if you, if you have a desire for goodness and it accomplishes itself in doing goodness, God did that. God did that. And work of faith with power. So there's that phrase again, work of faith. Third text, 2 Thessalonians 2.13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification. We, we said that earlier this morning, that salvation is through sanctification. That is, the pathway along which you must walk toward salvation is sanctification. If you say, I don't care about sanctification, I'm walking this route. It does not lead to salvation. Salvation is through sanctification. And then notice these prepositional phrases. Sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth. So two things. And we're going to ask later how these two are coordinated, namely spirit and faith. But here they are. Sanctification by the spirit and sanctification by faith in the truth. So if you ask how does sanctification happen? That is, how does holiness come about? It comes about by faith in the truth. And I'm going to argue the truth is promises about future grace. Faith in promises that are superior than anything sin can offer you is the power by which holiness is achieved in your life. That same thing is said in Acts 26, 18, like this. I send you, Jesus says to Paul, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So I believe in justification by faith, and I believe in sanctification by faith, and I believe it's the same faith which is what I think the Westminster divines meant when they said that the faith which justifies alone is never alone because the same faith that justifies sanctifies. Galatians 5, 6 is one of the most important texts of all in this regard. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any avail, but faith Working through love avails everything. That's my completion of the sentence. It stops right there without any clause to complete the sentence, and you have to supply it in your own understanding of the verse. Faith working by love avails everything, avails salvation, avails sanctification. So picture it. Faith Working by love or working itself out, some translations say. Faith works itself out. So faith is the great worker in our lives. Faith is the great worker. You don't, I've read some study Bibles that say we are justified by faith and we get rewards by works. Michael Eaton does not say that, by the way. But some have. So I'm simply arguing at this point, what sanctifies us is faith, the same faith that justifies us. Here's another one. First Timothy one five. The goal of our instruction is love 
from, now where does it come from? Where does love or holiness, goodness come from? From a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. So sincere faith is the origin of love. Famous Galatians 5, 6. Here's another one, two more. Hebrews 11, 8. You could choose any number of verses from Hebrews 11 because over and over again it says, by faith they did this, and by faith they did that, and by faith they did this. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed, going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. So faith is the energy, is the means by which this obedience happens. When you think works in the Christian life, you must think faith, not something separate from faith. The works that God wants earn nothing. The works that God wants create nothing of a relationship. The works that God wants express the authenticity of faith. That's all they are. They are the fruit of faith. They are the work of faith. They are what genuine faith does. One more verse. This one is huge, huge and would create controversy among many, many reformed people over the nature of the law and the covenant of works and other things, which we won't go into in detail. But I'll I'll read it to you and hint at some of the directions that it points Romans 9, 31 and 32, Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Then verse 32 says, why? That's not my word. That's in the Bible. Why? And then the answer comes like this. Because. They did not pursue it, that is, the righteousness, the law of righteousness. They did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. And the as though is cataclysmically important. Because it implies it was never to be by works. Now, those who are theologically minded among you will realize a little bit of what's at stake here. What this verse is saying, I think, is that the law given through Moses was never intended to be a law of works by which we earn anything from God. It was always intended to be a law of faith by which we express our love and affection and dependence upon the Exodus God who saves by grace. And a little bit of a confirmation. I mean, there's a huge issue, but just a little pointer for you to think about is that on Sinai, as the Ten Commandments are given, at the center of the revelation, just a few verses, After Moses has said, show me your glory, show me your glory. God lets him go into a covert, puts his hand over him and lets him go by and then lets him see his backside. And then 
as he goes up on Mount Sinai, he says, here's my revelation to you. This is the middle and essence of the law. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin unto a thousand generations of those who love him. That's the law. Forgiving iniquity, forgiving transgression, forgiving sin. The law, though it was a demand calling for obedience and promising life, not unlike those verses that I read, did not mean that you could earn life, but rather meant I love you, I created you, I rescued you from bondage. I come to you again and again and again in your rebellion and stretch forth my hands to you. I have provided means by which you can be forgiven iniquity and transgression and sin. There are no works by which you can earn forgiveness. It is freely offered. Just make the offering as an expression of your dependence on me. And Israel didn't get it and turned the law into works righteousness. I get all of that from the word. They did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works, which it wasn't. It wasn't. God has never had here. This. I have no idea where, where you are on this particular theological issue. But in traditional reformed covenant theology, there's a covenant of grace and a covenant of works. And the covenant of grace is established after the fall. Before that, there was the covenant of works, whereby God said to Adam, if you keep my law and don't eat this tree, you can merit or inherit eternal life. Testing him, he failed the test. God creates a covenant of grace by which he can have salvation by faith alone. The law comes in as another expression of that covenant of works. Calls men to earn their life in order to show them that they can't do it and thus send them to the cross. And the cross comes and establishes and purchases the covenant of grace in the new, the form of the new covenant. And Christians in every age are supposed to relate to God at the level of the new covenant. But the covenant of works is still functional. I don't believe there is such a thing as a covenant of works. I don't think God ever came to man and said, earn your salvation. That's Galatianism. God would be a heretic if he said that. God never, ever told Adam to earn his salvation. He came to Adam and he said, I'm your father. I love you. I have provided for you a garden. I will meet every need of yours absolutely freely. Be my son, trust me, relate to me in a loving, trusting father-son relationship. I'll show you everything you need. I'll provide you with everything. It's a lavish garden. There's one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Elsewhere in the Bible, that little phrase, knowledge of good and evil, stands for independence and self-reliance. Little children don't have the knowledge of good and evil. Senile people lose the knowledge of good and evil. When you're mature and independent and you call your own shots, you have the knowledge of good and evil. That tree stands for independence and autonomy over against God. Don't eat the tree. Love me. Be childlike in your faith. That's the way God related to Adam before the fall, I believe. 
And when the law came, it was simply an expression of the kind of life in that dispensation under those conditions that you live out faith. Much of it has fallen away. Massive parts of it are no longer applicable to us because Christ is our high priest. Christ is our sacrifice. Jesus declared all foods clean so that the whole ceremonial food law thing is gone and so on. There are turns in redemptive history whereby we no longer are in any way in bondage to those kinds of rules. So all of that just to say that this truth that faith is what works was not just started at the cross. It has always been the case with every kind of obedience God has ever asked for. The only kind of obedience God demands is the obedience of faith. Obedience which flows from faith. Next point. That was the point that faith is the worker here. Next point. What faith depends on is not just past grace expressed in the cross, but the promises of future grace. Now we're moving into really key elements of why having faith changes life. Grace that faith trusts in is power in the future, not just pardon for the past or the future. I hear Terry lauded as a a grace preacher and this movement as as a grace movement in South Africa Highlighted here earlier as a place or Africa as a place where the a grace message is needed. And I'm 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 glad I'm not real familiar with your movement so that I don't know whether what I'm going to say right now is obvious and a given or whether it's an add on or whether it's a contradiction. I can't believe it's a contradiction, but it might be something that's not stressed. Grace. In America, anyway, and in recent decades, those that in my city, I could name a few churches that are highlighted for their grace and people feel safe there. They feel healed there. They, there's no condemnation there. Stress grace mainly as God's leniency. That is God's forgiveness, God's pardon, God's Acceptance, which is awesomely precious. But it's half the truth of grace. Grace is also a power to change. Not a leniency with refusal to change. Grace is power in the New Testament. Not just pardon for sin. It is power to overcome sin. And until you sense how powerful and prevalent this is in the New Testament, that grace is thought of to be trusted, not just as pardon for bad things you've done and will do, but power to overcome the bad things you do. Faith in grace 
won't be faith in all that it should be, and your faith might not be real. To trust half a Christ may not be to trust the biblical Christ. So let me give you some verses to show you what I mean. This may be the most important one, although there's several here that are really important. First Corinthians 1510. By the grace of God. Note the word. By the grace of God, Paul says, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored harder than any of them, meaning the other apostles. Grace wasn't vain or empty in my life. I labored more than any of them. Nevertheless, it was not I, but the grace of God which is with me. Now, how do you compute that if grace is only pardon? Grace came to me. And is coming to me and will come to me. It didn't come in vain, but it produced striving and work. I labored as an apostle harder than any of them. I stayed up late in Ephesus. I was round the clock. I taught all morning. I made tents all night. My fingers got bloody. I lost sleep and I built a church. Nevertheless, it was not I, but the grace Of God that was with me. That's power. That's power. So grace is power. When I was preparing this book back in the summer of. I think it was the summer of 94. I was at my my wife's parents place. In a little cabin. That overlooks a little pond. With pine trees in the state of Georgia. In the south of our country. And I was just working so hard to get this thing finished in the brief little one-month sabbatical that I had from the church to do it. And I began to see things that I'd never seen before with regard to grace in the New Testament epistles. And one of them was this pattern. I don't know if you've ever noticed it. Have you ever noticed that in every single one Of Paul's letters, it begins with some form of the phrase, grace to you, grace to you, might be grace to you, grace and peace to you, grace and mercy to you, but it's always to you. And without exception, every single letter of the Apostle Paul ends with grace be with you, with you. Not to you. So always at the front, grace to you. And always at the back, grace be with you. I had never seen that in any commentary pointed out. And it may be there, and I just missed it. But for me, that stopped me for a long time saying, why? What what is going on here? What does this to you at the beginning mean and with you at the end mean? And grace that's not just back there in the cross. But right here, now, moving toward you. And here's my effort to understand that. In the beginning of the letters, Paul knows that he will roll the scroll up 
You give it to Tychicus or somebody, they'll travel over the miles to Thessalonica or Rome or Corinth, and somebody on a on a Lord's Day will stand up in a group like this in a house, and they'll open the scroll of the Apostle Paul, precious, and with some trembling begin to read. And they'll say, Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus, a servant of Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you who are in Ephesus. And it's as though Paul wanted to just bless him and say, right now, in my letter, through the word of God, inspired from him, I am ministering grace to you. Grace is coming to you as I read, as you read this, this epistle. Grace is coming to you. And oh, how we ought to feel that when the Bible is read or when we can open the Bible ourselves. Feel grace is coming to me. That's why he begins the letters. As you begin to read the Bible, you should hear God saying grace to you. I'm giving grace to you. This is grace to you. The word of God is grace to you. This is future grace. As long as you're reading the Bible, the cascading grace coming out of that reservoir in the future is pouring over your life. All right, they just keep reading. At Rome, it would have taken a long time. In Philippians, 20 minutes maybe or so, depending on how they read it. They read it, and as they come to the end, they read, Grace be with you. Knowing that as this is read, the assembly will very soon break up. They'll go out into very hostile and difficult and painful and dangerous circumstances, and he wants them to know The grace of God is going with you. Tonight, when we stop in a few minutes, we can say, grace be with you. And grace will go with you to your cars. Grace will go with you to your bed and breakfast or your hotel. Grace will hover over you as you sleep. Grace will guard you from demonic destruction. Grace will wake you up. Grace will sustain you if you get a a horrible phone call that somebody you love has died through the night, grace will be there. Grace is with you. So that's why I think it's grace to you at the beginning. The word of God is a ministry of grace to the people. And when it's over, he doesn't leave. Grace is not just past. It's going on into the future with you. So that's where I'm getting this idea of future grace. Grace is not just pardon. It's not just the cross. The cross purchased. We're going to talk about that more later, the relationship between past and future grace. But grace is a power that is moving with us into the future. Second uh, Corinthians nine, eight. God is able. This is in the context of giving. Talk about that lavish giving in South Africa. God is able to make all grace abound to you. That always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Now, that's important because it says God will make all grace abound to you. Will future tense, future grace This is all I mean by future grace. Nothing fancy. It's just this verse. God is able To make all grace abound to you for every good deed. And faith in future grace is the means by which we tap in to that grace. Faith in that grace, faith that it's coming, brings it home and frees us from anxiety. 
And anxiety is a big sin producer, believe me. It is sin, and it's a sin producer. Almost all lying comes from anxiety. Almost all greed comes from anxiety about whether you can afford this or that. Whether you're going to be happy if you don't have this or that. And to have faith in a promise like this of future grace, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance of for every good work. Everything God expects you to do, he gives you grace to do. And if you don't have grace to do it, it's not required of you. Second Corinthians 12, 9. My grace, this is the thorn in the flesh passage, you remember? I pray three times, take this away from me. And Jesus responds, my grace is sufficient for you. Meaning in the future. So what it was, whether it was a painful relationship or whether it was arthritis or whether it was eye problem or whether it was a speech defect that he stuttered or something. All these have little evidences throughout the epistles of Paul that he had eye problems or that he had a speech defect or it could have just been that horrible back that he had because he said five times he was given 39 lashes. A back after one time of 39 lashes will give you pain the rest of your life. It's jelly when they're done. And then it heals after a few months and, and then it happened again. Same back. And then it healed more slowly. And then it happened again three times. And then they pushed him down in the dirt. And he got all covered with dirt. They don't know anything about infection. They don't know anything about antibiotics. They don't know anything. It just gets infected. He has fever for weeks. When are he going to die? And it heals after about a year. Happens a fourth time. And it happens a fifth time. Maybe that's the thorn in the flesh. You wouldn't need any more. He probably couldn't stand up straight. He probably couldn't gesture without... Going, he probably walked with a, a stiffness because of the scar tissue all over his back. Whatever it was, this man said that Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you. Future grace will enable you to carry this, whatever this is. And therefore, he said, all the more gladly will I boast about my weaknesses, that the power of Christ, the power of grace may rest upon me, dwell in me. So the second point here tonight and, and the last one I think that we'll take is that grace is power coming to us out of the future or as we walk into the future, meeting us at every moment. And it is a promissory grace like. Who is a God like you? No eye has seen a God like you. No eye has, no ear has heard a God like you who works for those who wait for him. Isaiah 64, 4. Who works for those who wait for him. I love that passage of scripture. There have been key points in my life and the life of my staff where that verse has been what we've held on for, for dear life. God works for those who wait for him. And when he works for us and we rest in that work, we sever the root of grumbling and anxiety and greed 
and impatience. Faith in future grace is the great sin destroyer in our lives. Psalm 37, 5. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. So do you need God to act in your life? To triumph over something? Trust the promise of future grace. Second Chronicles 16.9. I prayed it for myself a few minutes ago when we gathered. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. Seeking to show himself mighty on behalf of those whose hearts are whole towards him. God loves to bear his arm and flex his muscles and work on behalf of those who trust him. Because the giver gets the glory. And he's bent on getting glory in your life. Psalm 50, verse 15. You, you should all be Spurgeon fans here. And I am. And Spurgeon preached a sermon one time called Robinson Crusoe's Text. And it's because Robinson Crusoe in the book prayed this prayer from Psalm 50, 15, which says, Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you will glorify me. Call upon me, I deliver you, you glorify me. I give the deliverance and I get the glory. You get the help. Faith in future grace. Praise without ceasing. It prays for more grace and more grace and more grace. Grace to get home tonight. Grace to get a good night's rest. Grace to wake up healthy in the morning. Grace to keep on believing. Grace for our hearts to be inclined to the word tomorrow morning. Grace to speak. Grace to listen. Grace for our churches. It just constantly is doing what Psalm 50, 15 says. Call upon me in the day of trouble. And there is no other kind of day. <laughs> in a world like ours. You have to be blind not to see trouble in all hands. And so we call upon the Lord continually and he comes continually in his wisdom and does help us and gets the glory. One last verse. Everybody knows Psalm 23 by heart. But I have never, ever been able to understand why the Elizabethan translators, unless I don't know Elizabethan English, Translated the last verse the way they did. Namely, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Because anybody who reads Hebrew knows what the verb is there behind the English word follow. Radaf. Which always means pursue. Not follow. Now, maybe there was some nuance 300 years ago in this island that said follow meant pursue. The follow to me is like a pet dog. This wagging his tail, just kind of, I'm behind you. I'm behind you. You going that way? I'm behind you. 
Well, frankly, that's not good enough for me. I need grace and mercy on my back, pursuing me, lest I get away from it. And that's the nuance. Surely goodness and mercy will pursue me like a policeman with a siren on all my life. That's the way God is. God is not just walking around behind you. Wondering which way you're going to go and see if you'll slip up and be ten yards behind you and see, oh, I wish I'd been there when you fell off the cliff. But rather, he's, he's always pursuing you. He's always after you. To think that way. He works for those who wait for him. So we should always be praying, oh God, get me. God, get me. Catch me. It is remarkable. It isn't, isn't it remarkable? I think it's remarkable. That at the end of the longest chapter of the Bible. What's the longest chapter of the Bible? It's all about the Bible. The longest chapter in the Bible is about the Bible. Psalm 119. It celebrates the value and the preciousness of the word of God in the life of the believer. And it ends in a most unexpected way. Because here you have 175 verses of celebrating the power and the preciousness and the sin-breaking might of the word of God. And it ends like this. Verse 176, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek thy servant. What a way to end the psalm. I have gone astray. Seek me. You pray like that? Seek me. Pursue me. Don't leave me out here in this thicket. My wool is all entangled with these things. It does add, for I do not forget thy commandments. You're all tangled up in sin outside the sheepfold. And you realize what a mess you've made of your life again. And you're thinking, oh, that was so stupid to lie or to cheat or to turn that stupid station on or to... Visit that person or why did I do that? Seek me. Pursue me. Help me. And when you cry like that, according to Psalm 50, 15. He's got his red lights on and his siren on. And he's on you fast. So I believe That when you trust that kind of future grace, that God is after you, God works for you, God acts for you, God shows his power on your behalf, God gives to you, God pursues you. The power of sin will be broken in your life. You won't become sinless in this age. Sin will no longer have dominion over you, Paul says in Romans 6, because... The power of a surpassing promise severs the root of the promises of sin. Sin says, if you do this, it'll go better. 
And along comes these glorious promises of future grace and says, it won't go better, it'll go worse, it'll go better this way. And if you believe that, this loses its power. Well, Terry said 9.30 or 9.45. And I'm willing to take six or seven minutes of questions if you want to. Does anybody have just something burning? Otherwise, we'll stop and we'll go get some rest. But let's just see if something's been perplexing. I'll give two sweeps here of my eyes. And I'm very, boom, didn't have to sweep very far. Back row. I just uh, would like you to explain a bit further what you meant when you said that before Right. Verse 12, chapter 3. Yeah. (laughs) And the first thing I'll say is that I could be wrong. And uh, that verse may be the Achilles heel of my system. My understanding of that verse and... and, uh, there's an elaborate defense of it in people like C.E.B. Cranfield, Daniel Fuller, uh, Flukiger, is that law in Paul, nomos in Paul, has several meanings. And you must judge according to the context, whether it's the Mosaic law in its Mosaic intention, which I think is gracious, or whether it's the distortion of the law in its Pharisaic understanding, which turns it into a legalistic code by which you earn righteousness. And that's what I think is being referred to in verse 12. Now, it would take more than I can do now and more than you're wanting me to do now to try, I think, to defend that. But what you need to do now is that's the key verse that should be brought up in contradistinction to what I gave you from 9.32. So put Romans 9.32 over against Galatians 3.12 and you work at harmony. You work it out. My effort to work it out is to say that uh, the Mosaic law, as God intended it, was a, a, a beautiful gift for that dispensation of how people of faith live out their lives. It is the evidence of faith. The Jews, let me give you a little, little picture. Maybe this will stick. Um, picture me on a railroad here. There are two rails running, and there are railroad ties connecting the rails every few feet or so. And the intention of God, this is the law running along the ground here. And the intention of God is for you to get in the train of grace. And by faith, stay in the train, and the engine of the power of the Holy Spirit drives you along obedience to heaven. It's all leading to heaven. What the Pharisees did wrong, the Judaizers of Galatia, was they looked at this thing, Now, they are essentially proud people. They're sinners. I don't think the Judaizers in Galatia were born again. Paul said it was another gospel. Nothing made him more angry than Galatia. It's the only letter where he doesn't begin with some nice words for the church. He's fuming. He said, if an angel brings you another gospel, don't believe them. And these Judaizers arrive and you just bow down to them. What the Judaizers did in Galatia was they looked at this thing and said, oh. I see what this is. And they reached down with all their moral striving and took hold of the rails and went (laughs) and turned it into a ladder. It looks like a ladder. Got two railings, ties. You can climb on it. And they leaned it up against heaven 
And they started to climb. To demonstrate their moral capacities. Because you've got to get good if God's going to accept you. And the way to get good is to use the law to get good. So that God will be pleased and impressed with your life. Well, that's dead end. That's, that's against the cross. It's against grace. We've got to lay the law back down. A lot of the law is going to go, like I said, because of the change in dispensation from this side of the cross to the other, that side to this side. And, and it is simply a, a pathway to heaven, and you're supposed to walk on it. And if you stumble off of it and you have the Holy Spirit, you wake up and you say, ah, what am I doing? And you get back on it, and you, and you walk on it, you kind of up and down on your way to heaven. That's my best effort to account for Galatians 3.12. It's a long day. One more, and that's and we'll be done. <laughs> wow! Wow! Did you all hear that question? I guess I should repeat it for the tape. Uh, if God created all things for His glory, and we're to delight in Him and bring Him glory through joy, why did He create evil? And if He didn't create evil, where did it come from? Oh man! <laughs> that's the biggest question in the universe. Um, so any answer is inadequate, so I won't feel bad by giving you one. It would be theologically ill-advised to say God created evil. However, (laughs) there are texts in Isaiah, for example, that say he creates weal and he creates woe. And I think, well, I'll just give you a summary. My view of the sovereignty of God is that God never sins. He is pure. He is light. But God ordains that sin be. It's, there's a difference between sinning and willing that there be sin in the universe. Now, if you can't handle that, you best just say this is a mystery and we can't figure it out and go home. Otherwise, you're going to get yourself into some really hairy and horrible things. And, and you know, Calvin said what God was doing in eternity was preparing hell for people who tried to answer this question. <laughs> so Calvin was very, very willing to live with Mystery, and we, we must also, because even after I give you this answer, it, there will be lots of mystery left that we don't understand. But I will say, if you ask, where did, where did the serpent in the garden come from? I think there are enough tips in the Bible that he's a fallen angel. And then if you press it back further and say, where did Lucifer come from? He was a good angel. And then if you push it and say, why did he stop being good? And choose to be evil. I don't know why he did. But I know God could have stopped it. And he didn't. And therefore he will in his sovereign counsels. He governs all things according to the counsel of his will. He willed permissively. That's one of the words used in Reformed theology. He willed permissively that sin be. Now your second question is why. Is that right? And I think 
that the ultimate answer is given in Romans 9, 22. So we'll close with this. I wrote a whole book on this chapter, and it's down there. The justification of God. If you want to know, it took me seven, it took me longer to write that book than any of my other books. Romans 9 consumed me as an Arminian. Just consumed me. I went to seminary as a raving, fighting, vicious Arminian. I, I, I walked up to teachers. I mean, I already told you what a disrespectful student I was. I walked up to Jim Morgan, the Calvinist systematic theology teacher who died of cancer the the next year. And I loved him by the time he died. But at the beginning, he was a real adversary. He was teaching on theology and arguing that God was sovereign and that free will was in bondage to sin. Like Spurgeon says, free will a slave. And I was fuming in the back rows. And I walked up to him after class one day and I put this pen in front of his nose like this. I dropped it. That's what I said. That was that was my Arminianism. I couldn't see it any other way. And if I can drop that, I can not believe or I can believe and I can do what I please. And God doesn't intrude on any of this free will that John Piper has. Well, all he did was make us read Romans 9. And by the time, that was 1969, I believe, in that class. And my book on the justification of God, which is an exposition of Romans 9, was published in 1983. And those problems just, that chapter just consumed me. Just consumed me. I must understand this chapter. I must get the God of Romans 9. This God seems so out of sync with my theology. I don't get it. And so that's the book. That's the book you should get, though. It's it's really heavy sledding because it's got all kinds of Greek and Hebrew in it. And I haven't produced a popular edition of it yet. But here's the. Here's the end. Here's the here's the end of Paul's theodicy, which is the justification of God. Verse 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath or willing to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the vessels made for destruction in order, purpose clause, in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy? What if he's done that? And the question isn't answered. It's hanging. And I think it's to be finished by no legitimate objection can be raised. I think that's the end of the sentence. If God has willed or desired to make known his wrath by enduring in much long suffering vessels made for destruction, in order, this is the why. You ask why. Verse 23 says why. In order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy. 
God ordained that there be sin in order that he might lavish the world with both grace against the backdrop of wrath for the vessels of mercy to be staggered by, as it says in Ephesians 2, 7, to lavish them with grace forever and ever. And I'll add this and close with this. He has done it in a way so that nobody is treated unjustly. Now, I know much in our own minds rises up and says that cannot be. He cannot ordain that there be sin and that some of those sinners be condemned in order that his wrath be displayed as a huge backdrop for the hugeness of grace. He cannot do that without treating those people unjustly. And the Bible simply says, yes, he can and does. There is no injustice with God. Even though the objector in verse 19 says, why does he then still find fault? Our problems are in the Bible. Paul is very much aware of what we're all thinking right now. And he says, this is God. So you can see why this this is seven years worth of meditation and why it took a book and more to figure it out. We can pick up more of that tomorrow if you want. But let's let's close this good day by praying together. Lord, this is a very heavy note to end on tonight about the origin of evil and the reason that you have ordained to permit it. And I ask that it be lifted in its heaviness if it would crush anyone. But that if it could be used, Lord, at this hour, I take it in your providence that you ordained this last question. If it could be used, and I ask that you would use it, To further underline the supremacy of your name and the infinite importance of your glory over us and our glory. Then do that underlining work, I pray. But Lord, let none go to bed tonight indicting you. Let none go to bed tonight accusing you. Let us put our hands upon our mouths And agree with Deuteronomy 29, 29, that the secret things belong to the Lord. Ours is to know what we are given to know and to believe your word, not to understand the high, holy, eternal mysteries of all things. Grant, I pray, that we would tremble with joy in your presence because of how great you are. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen.